I can see the promised land, though there's pain within the plan, there is victory in the end, your love is my battle cry, when my fears like Jericho,
Father, it's an awesome thing to realize the depths of your love for us and for all that you've made, and that that love is eternal. Help us to to immerse ourselves in your great love today as we worship, that we might immerse ourselves in your love every day that we live. Thank you for being here with us. We offer this time of worship to you through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. take my cue from Pastor Wes. He's the last one to sit down, usually. He wants that to be longer, and he's trying to enforce that. I'm speaking on behalf of uh, our missions committee, your missions committee, but especially on behalf of the many good folks in Puerto Rico. We just want to say thank the Lord, and even thank you for such great generosity uh, we are providing two checks for over $6,800. You can do the math, two times $6,800. Uh, we're sending them to Puerto Rico. I don't know if Dave has already sent them, but he knows about this and probably has. One to Wesleyan Academy, and uh, we'd love to have live Skype or a video, but we've, we've had correspondence with the principal, and uh, they're, they're doing major renovations. Nine classrooms were were heavily affected by the hurricane. And then, of course, one check to World Hope, who've been doing ongoing rehabilitation and, and uh, help after the storm. God is gracious, and you've proven to be so generous. And I guess this we could announce that it was maybe a record Christmas Eve offering. And so we're so thankful, so thankful for that. Next, our, our year-long faith promise goal of $33,340 winds up in four months. So it was last May that we took pledges or promises as God would supply. And we're not quite 50% there as far as what we've received. So again, we wait for God's provision above our regular offerings to support these wonderful Wesleyan missionaries. You'll see a couple different slides of them. The Austins, the Georges, also the Rodrigos, the Teeds in Haiti, and the Strands, Strands in Buffalo, Rodrigo's in Sri Lanka. So these are our missionaries that we support. But one extra family, which they're part of the six, are the Caringos. Uh, uh, we'll come to that slide. But it's not too late, just let me mention, for uh, newcomers to join us. I have a few extra little pieces of information on a back table in the foyer. You may not have been part of the Faith Promise Pledge. You say, I just can't do it. But if God blesses you in an unusual way, you can just designate and continue to be part of our Faith Promise Pledges until uh, the end of May. We especially wish to focus on the Caringos because they're going to be here with us in a few weeks, three weeks, 
on uh, February the 11th. Uh, they come from the Boston area. They're on their way to speak in Wesleyan churches on the West Coast, and they're going to stop by at Buffalo and come spend three days with us. And they're just such wonderful, warm people. I hope you'll be able to, to hear them and meet them. They've spent over 35 years in mission work in Nepal, in uh, Zambia, uh, overseeing our work in all of Asia, and now they're going to a special location in East Asia to do medical work. So we hope that all of us will find ways to participate in our missions. We'll call it emphasis, a week, a convention. I don't know what to call it, but it's over two Sundays, the 4th through the 11th. And you'll be hearing much more information about our mission's emphasis. The theme, why the Great Commission, is still great. So thanks to you, and thanks to God for all his blessings. God bless. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Bring 
get the opportunity to offer our prayers to God. As we do so, if you would like to come and kneel at the altar rail as you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we do want to offer to you our praise. We thank you for the gift of life that you've given us. And we pray that you will help us to to use our breath that you've given us to praise you, to serve you. To speak to you from the depths of our hearts. Father, as we gather today... There are a wide variety of, of emotions and a wide variety of experiences that we bring with us today. For some today, uh, there is grief, pain, and loss. We pray that you will, you will comfort and heal every grieving heart. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns. We pray especially for Tim Nichols and Bob Brown. For Jane Swanson, Louise Princell, and Hudson Hess. For Nancy Cole, and Brian Orbacher, and Peter Lingenfelter, and Ellis Brotsman. For Chuck Barrett, and Cheryl O'Brien. For Ben King, and Doris Asepian. For Isla Shea, and Sheldon Emerson. For Bill Getty, and Ella Woolsey. And for Mike Raybuck, and Bev Rett. Micah Christensen. For Linda Roth, and Emily Crickler. And brothers who are on our minds and our hearts today, may you bring your healing grace into each circumstance. Father, we we thank you for for our church and for the ways in which we serve each other and serve the world. And as we were just thinking about our, our connection to the rest of the world, we pray that you continue to stir in our hearts a a yearning to see more and more people around the world come to know the joy of life with you. We thank you for churches around us. We pray today for the Higgins Wesleyan Church and Pastor Bruce Smith. Pour out your blessing upon this body of believers as they worship today, as they live out their faith uh, the rest of the week. May your grace be clearly upon them. And Father, we... We pray for this world in which we live. We think of the Caringales, and we thank you for, for their service for so many years in various places. And now as they embark on, on a new assignment, may your grace and mercy be upon them. Prepare them and, and give them all that they need to bear witness of you to those that they serve. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who who live in opposition and persecution every day. We think particularly of, of the, those who are current, uh, who are refugees and, and people who are, who are dealing with the, the various immigration policies and the debate going on in our country right now. We ask, Father, that, that you will help the leaders of our country to have 
sensitive, open hearts to people who are in need. And we pray, Father, for the believers from many countries of the, of the world, that they would hold fast to their faith and they would trust you as they face a very uncertain, difficult future. Father, we, we pray for people in this world who are most vulnerable. And we, on this Sunday, when, when we celebrate the sanctity of human life, we thank you for, for all life, for every person that you've created in this world and given breath. And we pray, Father, that you will help us as your people and the church around the world to be on the forefront of valuing all life. May our words, our actions, our thoughts, all that we do, communicate your heart for every person in this world. And Father, we pray for the leaders of our government as they deal with serious issues that affect people who are often most vulnerable and powerless. We pray that that you would help every person in the, in the leadership of our nation to put aside partisan politics and, and do what is best. Whatever our position may be at a time where we feel this divisiveness, we pray that you would help us to remember that our lives are first and foremost about you, that you are our only hope, that we trust you and you alone. And Lord, whatever side we may be on, help us to commit ourselves to pray for our leaders, for those in Washington and in Albany and closer to us in Belmont and Canadia, that they will be channels of your purposes for those who are most hopeless and vulnerable here and around the world. Father, we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly. And we ask, Father, that you will continue to open our hearts to you as we serve one another. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the gospel this morning. Mark 9, 30 through 37. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. 
They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. At this time, children may be dismissed to Children's Church. Thank you.
Please be seated. I did want to mention that uh, you, in your bulletin, you see a couple of announcements. One about the stone soup uh, dinner coming up that the preschool is hosting. Uh, if you could provide a dessert, that would be greatly appreciated. And Costa wouldn't have to make 200 desserts. Uh, so if you can help out with that, you can contact the office or Costa Danner uh, and uh, find out more about that. That would be appreciated. And also just want to remind you about the his- history books. Uh, I was looking through that this week, and, and one of the things about it is that there are some pictures that you probably want to see of uh, some of us a few years back uh, that might be interesting to you. Uh, so you can pick one of those up uh, in the back for you as you go today. You ever had the experience as a child where, I'm not saying that I ever had this experience, but maybe you have, where... You get into an argument with one of your, your brother or sister or a good friend you're playing. And later your parents come to you and say, so what was going on in there? What was that about? What were you guys arguing about? I had almost felt like I needed to come in there and break you up. What was going on? And, and you, you don't know what to say. Because the truth of the matter is... You really shouldn't have been arguing in the first place. And you knew it was wrong, and you knew you shouldn't be doing it, but you did it anyway. And you don't know what to say, but you feel embarrassed and guilty. Jesus has one of those experiences with his disciples. This chapter, Mark 9, tells us that after, the, after they have uh, been with the crowd, they walk away from them. Jesus wants to get away because he wants to teach his disciples. And he pours out his heart to them. He says, here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man, me, I'm going to be arrested, tortured, I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. But it's going to be pretty tough. And he's pouring out his heart to them. And, and the disciples, Mark tells us, they don't get it. They, they don't understand what he's saying. But what I find fascinating is that Mark gives us the, the... He tells us that not only do they not understand what he's saying, they're afraid to ask him about it. They don't want to say to him, Jesus, we don't get it. Jesus, we don't understand what you're trying to tell us. And, and I think the reason why they don't want to ask him and the reason they don't want to get into the conversation with him is, quite frankly, it's just not that important to them. You probably have been in a class setting where the, the professor or the teacher is talking about something and it's just not getting through to you. If you really want to learn, if you really want to know what this is about, you ask a question. Even if you might risk being embarrassed, if you really want to know, you ask it. If it's not that important to you, embarrassment overrules understanding. We've all been there. And I think that's what's going on with the disciples. And Jesus understands that. And so he comes to them and he asks them a question. And it is one of the most penetrating and explosive questions that we have in all of the scriptures. And it's a very simple question. He looks at them and he just says, so what was that about back there on the road? What were you guys discussing 
when we were walking back there. What were you arguing about? And the word that he uses there is tra- can, be, can mean to discuss. It can mean to argue. It can mean to have a heated conversation, to be passionate about it. It is some kind of disagreement that you're having. And Jesus said to them, so what was going on back there? And we find out in verse 34 that, that the, the, what they were arguing about was who's the greatest. And the response to Jesus is silence, much like we might respond to our parents. Because they know they shouldn't be arguing about who's the greatest, but they are. I don't know what triggers this conversation with them on the road. It makes me wonder if it doesn't have something to do with some events that took place a little before this. Earlier on in the chapter... Uh, Mark, uh, in the, uh, in the, earlier on in this chapter, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and they have this knock-your-socks-off experience of seeing Jesus transfigured and seeing Moses and Elijah with him. I mean, it's so amazing. Peter says, you know what, Jesus, let's just build some, some houses up here and we'll just stay. This is pretty awesome. Why would we want to go back to life? Let's just stay right here. I mean, you can't imagine that kind of experience that would feel like. And then to realize as you come down from that, you know what, guys? There are only three people in the whole world that saw that. The three of us got to see it. The nine of those losers didn't get to. Right? I mean, there's something in your mind about that. And Jesus says to them, Now, guys, don't talk about this until I've resurrected from the dead. But come on. You know, I mean, even if they don't say it, even if they don't say a word to anyone about it, you know there is this aura that they're feeling of, it's too bad you guys can't have the kinds of experiences with Jesus that we have. It goes on all the time in the church. It's not just being the greatest. It's not just, gee, I'm more important to Jesus than you are. I mean, it is that sometimes. But that's, that's so overt that we really don't have that argument. What we do argue about is, who's had the best experiences with Jesus? And we make our experiences the, the, the litmus test for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we say to people, either subtly or overtly sometimes, it's really too bad you haven't had this experience with Jesus. If you could only have this experience with Jesus, then your life would be like mine. We don't say those words, but we give people the impression of those words. And you add to that, when they come back down from the mountain, they encounter the other nine, and they're having an argument with the religious leaders because they tried to drive out a demon, and they weren't able to do it. And they're having this argument, and now, not only do these guys have this awesome experience, these nine guys have had a failure experience. And there's a level of embarrassment. And we tend to get defensive when we're embarrassed. And so you have this dichotomy as they're walking on the road, and you can almost hear the, the, the nine saying, so what's up with you guys? Nothing. And they laugh and wink at each other at the inside joke that it's too bad you guys don't know. I mean, it's human nature. Who's closer to Jesus? Who's more like Jesus? Who's had the experiences with Jesus? It, the, the history of the church is fraught. With those kinds of arguments. And we're not immune to them either. And so Jesus says to them, look guys, sit, come over here and sit down. 
And they come and they sit down and he says, let me talk to you about something. He says, the reality is, if you, arguments about who's the greatest are incompatible with the kingdom. It's not that they, they come to the wrong conclusion. The issue is, this is not an argument you have when you're part of the kingdom to begin with. The kingdom is not about who is the greatest. It's not about who's in and who's out. It's not about who has the best experiences with Jesus. He says, that's not what the kingdom is about. It is incompatible with the kingdom to have an argument about which of us is the greatest. It simply doesn't work that way. And he says to them, if you really want to know what greatness is about, here's here's the litmus test. Here's what it means to be a disciple. If you want a litmus test, it's not an experience, as awesome as they are. It's not what you know, as great as that is. Here's the litmus test. That you choose to be a servant of everybody else. You will notice here, he doesn't say that you be a servant, but he makes a specific, a servant of everyone, a servant of all. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what the kingdom is about. That's what Jesus is about. You think about that in, in our lives, in our everyday lives. And so it, it, it comes down to, to, to things like the person, uh, maybe the classmate that at lunchtime nobody wants to sit by because they drive everyone crazy or they're just a little bit different. And, and you decide, I'm going to go sit with them. Or it's the person whose lifestyle is completely different than ours. And we decide we want to be friends with them. It's, it's, it's taking on, bringing about relationships with people that we naturally would not have. It's about looking at people the way Jesus does. And I think that's why Jesus then says to them, okay, I've told you to be a servant, but let me just explain it for you. Let me put this into a kind of perspective that that you can see. And he, he calls a little child over. They must have been in a place where there were other people around. And he calls one of the little children over, and he says, he takes the child, he sits down, puts the child on his lap, and says, look, here's the deal. If, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, he says, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. But really what you're doing is you're not really even just welcoming me, you're welcoming my father. To welcome someone, to receive them, is to value them, to respect them, to honor them. It's to say, this person is important, even if everyone in society says they're not. This word, welcome, is the word that's used to attack Jesus. The religious leaders say to his disciples, what's wrong with, with your rabbi? What's wrong with your leader? Because he welcomes He hangs out with, he honors, he respects tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. And they're upset because good religious people don't do that. And Jesus says, yes, we do. In fact, Jesus says, that's what we do. So when you think about people in your life, people in this world... 
that, that would be people like Jesus is talking about with little children. I don't think he's specifically just talking about children, though that is a big part of it. Because particularly in that culture, uh, children were often politely dismissed. Children, I mean, children in general have, have very little ability to, to influence our lives financially. And in fact, our children don't gain us money, they cost us money. Our children don't typically add, had, add fame and, and value to us. Our, t- our children take our time and our energy. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's with people who, who have, can't really bring any intrinsic value to your life. You serve them anyway. You welcome them. They become important to you. The people of our world who we might typically say are not that valuable, who are not that important, who we can easily ignore. Jesus says, these are the very people that my disciples give their lives serving. I think it's, it's a... I think in our culture, in, in the current church culture... I think we have to figure out what it means to serve. You know, often our serving is done from a position of power. We have something they don't have, and so we graciously give it to them. We graciously help them. But but it's very clear that we are operating from a position of power and strength. I think Jesus is calling us to operate from a position of weakness and vulnerability. I think about how so much of, of, of our work of the church around the world through the centuries was done from a position of power. We often call it colonialism. Where, where we, we go into a country and we basically westernize them. And, and we hold, we have money and they don't. And so we, we, we use that to influence. And we have power and we have, we have authority and we have education and we have all the things that they don't. And we use that as a means of holding, of keeping them doing what we want them to do. And maybe what the gospel is calling us to is to be people who not just think about being servants who help meet other needs, but servants who realize that we need other people. And I think most of us probably struggle more with letting people help us than we do with being people who help others. And that's because we want to operate from a position of power and strength instead of from a position of weakness and vulnerability. But to be a servant is, is to give up our power. When we pray each week for the persecuted church, I have to tell you, sometimes it's hard for me to do that. I mean, I'm glad that we do it and we're going to continue to do it. And every time we pray for the persecuted church, it, it helps us remember them and engage with them that much more. But there's a part of me that feels completely unworthy to pray for the persecuted church. Because quite frankly... Their faith has been forged in experiences that my faith never has. Their daily lives are, 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 are 
they understand in their daily lives what it means to put your life on the line for Jesus in a way that I suspect most of us have not. And every time I'm praying for the persecuted church, in the back of my mind, and sometimes I say this, but I'm saying, I hope they are praying for us. I hope that what they have, how they operate, what they do, the the depth of their relationship with Jesus because of what they've been through and are going through, I hope that we get some of that faith, some of that strength that they live with every day. Kenneth Bailey reminds us that, that Jesus operates from a position of weakness and vulnerability. And he talks about how, you know, I mean, it's hard to be any more vulnerable than becoming an infant baby. And Jesus is so self-emptying of himself that he needs other people. I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. It's what Paul writes in Philippians 2. You know, though he's in very nature God, Jesus did not grasp what was rightfully his, but made himself a servant, humbled himself, became vulnerable. And this is the pathway of being a disciple of Jesus. It's hard to know sometimes if, if being servants is, is really having an impact, is making any difference, is, is, is bearing fruit. And, and I think that's why when you get to the end of this passage, and we didn't read all the way through, but when you get to the end of this passage in verse 50, Jesus talks about being people who bring peace. Live in peace with each other. And I think one of the ways that we know we are really serving other, others in the way that Jesus has called us to, when we're serving others from, this, from a position of vulnerability instead of power, we become peacemakers. When we come into a situation, we help create an atmosphere of peacemaking. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for what they will be called children of God. Because our God is a God of shalom, a God of peace, a God who brings stability, a God who brings people together. And the question that that we have to keep asking ourselves is when we enter a situation, when we have a presence in a situation, does our presence create an atmosphere of peacemaking or contentiousness? And sometimes we say, well, we have to be contentious because we're fighting for what's right. We're fighting for orthodoxy. And and we, we want to be for what's right. And we want to be about orthodoxy. But Jesus says there's a way to do that and the right way and a wrong way to do that. And the right way to do that is to be people who come in a spirit of peacemaking. A people who come in a spirit of serving. People who listen. People who honor others, even if they have a different opinion about things than we do. It doesn't mean we're not right. We've just come to realize that the point of being a disciple of Jesus is not convincing people we're right. It's trying to lead them to Jesus. And we lead them to Jesus by loving and serving and caring and listening and surrendering. 
But you'll also notice that Jesus brings in, up in this passage also, not just about peace, but he also talks about salt here in verse 50. And, and he's talked about this before. He's talked about this at different times. And here he talks about the fact that you have to have the qualities of salt among yourselves. We've all heard that. We need to be salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. Salt has a lot of different properties. Salt seasons food that we eat and, and brings out flavor. Salt uh, was a preservative. You know, before refrigeration was a common, was something common. People would, would preserve things with salt. Salt also is a tenderizer. I remember as a child, you know, you know, like probably many of you, you know, you didn't buy the best cuts of meat. But my dad would tenderize that meat. And by the time it came off the grill, it, it was really tender. And, and, you, and you get that. And salt does that too. It breaks down the toughness of meat. But I also discovered something else about salt recently. I read an article a year or so ago. And, and it was an article about salt. In Christianity Today. And in this article, they're talking about how this, the, the person writing the article said he came across in some research, a, uh, some research by a guy named um, uh, Eugene Dietrich, who was for many years formerly the, uh, the head of the Department of Soils at West Virginia University. He spent his life studying soil. And he, had a lot of, he spent a lot of time researching things about soil. And he said that when you research ancient cultures back thousands of years... It was a very common practice to spread salt on their fields to help the crops grow better. It helped with weeds and it helped nourishing the soil. What he said is actually what they did is they used salt as fertilizer. And he said, when I read the words of Jesus in scripture about salt, he said, I am convinced that Jesus is not talking about household salt that we use every day. He's talking about the agricultural use of salt. Which means that what Jesus is really saying to us is, I want you to be the manure of the earth. Okay, wait a second. Time out. I've I've helped out farmers sometimes. I've shoveled manure. We've all driven around the countryside here and we know when manure is being spread, right? Nobody wants to be manure. I don't mind being table salt. None of us want to be manure. That's not just counterintuitive and countercultural. That's kind of repulsive. But I think he's right. Because I think we are called to be such servants of the gospel that our presence nourishes the lives of other people. It nourishes the soil of our world. We become a presence of peacemaking. We become a presence of God's joy and grace and peace because we're the kind of servants that look like Jesus. And that's really what this all comes down to. It's about being like Jesus. It's about being like the one who gave his life in serving you and me and the whole world. And the reason we can be these kinds of servants, the reason we can be the kind of salt that God is calling us to be is because we know who we are in Christ. We're children of God. And I'm convinced at the heart of our struggle about greatness 
our struggle to be the greatest instead of to be the servant of all, it comes down to not really being sure we are who God says we are. And we haven't really grasped, we haven't truly come to see ourselves the way God sees us. As valuable and loved. As so worthwhile that Jesus would give his life for you and you and me. This is who we are. And when you begin to understand that, you can be a servant. We don't have to always be right. We don't have to always be at the top of the heap. We can be the servant of all. Because we know who we are in Christ. This is the pathway to flourishing. This is the pathway to life. Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to know a life of flourishing, if you want to know a life of joy, if you want to know what you were created to be, this is the pathway you choose. It is the pathway of of even though we have all the authority in the world, which we do, we choose to use it to be vulnerable and to serve and to even come to the place where we are serving so much that we become needful of other people's serving too. The thing that struck me about Some of this I was thinking about it this week is that this is not something that we're going to do for a little while and then when Jesus reappears, we'll be done with it. This is an eternal principle of the kingdom. This is is what the kingdom is about. It's about being servants of all. And when when Jesus reappears and ushers in his kingdom, we will not stop being servants. We will just be perfect servants. We'll be the kind of servants that Christ has always called us to be, that we're struggling to be now. We'll be true servants of all. Because that's what Jesus is. And that's why Lewis writes in The Great Divorce and says that even people who have the opportunity to pack up their bags in hell and move to heaven don't want to. Because heaven offers nothing that they want. Because they don't want to be servants. They don't want to. They don't want love to be at the center of their life. They don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to give. They don't want to, to embrace the way of Christ. It's all about self. I read a, a prayer by the Moravians this week. Moravians were uh, pietistic Germans who were, had, a, had a huge influence on John Wesley and the Methodist movement. You know, we have our prayer vigil every, every fall for three weeks, 24 hours a day. They had a 24-hour-a-day prayer vigil for 100 years. 100 years. And one of the prayers that, that came out of their movement was this. From the desire for greatness, O Lord, set us free. 
from the desire for greatness, O Lord, set us free. Because it's only in desiring Jesus that we find the kind of life that we're deep down seeking in the first place. Because the question is not which of us is the greatest. The answer to that question is none of us. Because only Jesus is the greatest. And he loves us. And we are valuable and worthy and significant to him. And through him, we are enabled to be servants like him. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for the calling you placed on us. Thank you for loving us, for wanting us, desiring us. May we so experience and embrace who we are in you that we can be who you call us to be and find joy, flourishing, as you created us to experience. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Take all I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior, I owe everything to. Take all the treasures.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.